0: Hey there, NFT curious listeners, this is Ethan Janney from the Edge of Company and the Edge of NFT podcast. We're here with you In Davos Switzerland today coming to you from the World Economic Forum Convention that happens here every year we're gonna bring you some of the sharpest minds and global leaders telling you what they think about what's next and how they're making it happen in today's episode we're gonna transition from one interview to the next with a sound effect briefly in between to just give you that feeling that you're here with us transitioning from one engaging conversation to the other so stay tuned sit back Back, relax and enjoy welcome to the edge of nft
1: with your hosts jeff kelly ethan Janney, and josh krieger the podcast that brings you the top one percent of nfts today and what will stand the test of time we explore the nuts and bolts and the business side and also the human element of how nfts are changing the way we interact with the things we love this podcast is for the dreamers disruptors and doers who are pumped about this ecosystem and driving where it goes next.
0: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Davos. This is our second day here. We're really excited to keep the excitement rolling. And today we're here at Blockchain Hub doing some interviews. And actually, we're going to talk to some members of the Casper team, looking to be a great interview. So let's have them each introduce themselves. Let's start with you, Medha.
2: Hi, I'm Meta Parlakar. I'm the CTO and one of the co-founders of Casper Labs. We're the company that built the Casper Network and turned it over to the public Casper Association, who are now stewards of the network. Very happy to be here today.
3: Yeah, and Renal. Hi, everyone. I'm Renal. I'm one of the co-founders and CEO of Casper Labs. I'm a computer scientist who went to Wall Street, and I guess now I'm reformed.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think it's it's so apropos, too, because we have here in Davis. An experience where we have, like, the old guard and the traditional finance and the non-traditional, like, you know, interacting daily. And you know, it's a big deal that you guys decided to do this house. It's been uh, incredible to be a partner here and the hospitality has been amazing. The lattes have been critical. The croissants <laughs> have been
0: on point. I'm jonesing from my latte. It's sitting right over there.
4: <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I'd love to hear the Genesis story about, you know, the blockchain hub. Why did you do this? How did this come to be? Why was this the year to pull this
5: off?
3: Yeah, so I think it goes back to what you're saying. Davos is where, you know, we have government, financial, and enterprise leaders. And we as a company really don't, you know, there's definitely a slightly anarchistic streak sometimes in blockchain. But if you think about it, I view it as an augmentation of the current system, not a great replacement. Hmm. If you think about any big technical innovation, yeah, seems disruptive at first and can be very very disruptive but it usually ends up being an augmentation. You still go to the grocery store even though you can order bananas on Amazon. But not having that option is great and having an option of self-sovereign money is great. That message doesn't come across enough that this is an augmentation. It's something enterprises and governments needn't be scared of. And you know, we purpose-built our blockchain to be government and enterprise friendly. And we really thought the blockchain hub, and that's why we called it the blockchain hub and not the Casper hub, is we thought it's just important to have educational content for these world leaders in both government and enterprise to learn about blockchain technology in general, and what we can offer as the Casper network in particular. But really, you know, the blockchain hub is more of an educational endeavor more than anything else.
4: You know, and one thing I've realized just from meeting your really incredible team here is you have this really interesting mix of folks that come maybe from the blockchain space, but also other folks that come from traditional business and Cisco and and companies like that. What's it been like to build that type of culture and for that team to rally around planning this event?
3: I'll say a little bit. I'll defer to Meta on this because (laughs) Meta is the one who's had like the most enterprise chops here. I was a Wall Street guy. I did work in software, but it was more buying, selling, managing than anything else. But I think right when we started the company, our ethos was... Blockchain is a technology, we're looking for great engineers and great builders, which means you don't need to have a blockchain background, right? You, it's a technology you can teach someone about. You can't make someone a great engineer, you can't give someone great experience, but you can educate them about blockchain. So that culture permeates both internally within our organization and also externally when we face the external world, which is why, you know, educating people about blockchain yeah. is so important to us.
4: And I'll just say, I'd love to your, hear your thoughts, but I'll just add to that. That, you know, people have asked us like about how we built the team and, oh, I talked to someone in your team that doesn't have a blockchain background. I was like, great. Like, that's Mm -hmm. fantastic. We need those people right in the industry. If, If it's all the same people, then how do we make this industry bigger? So I'm right. I'm totally on board with that.
2: That's exactly right. So our engineers come from all kinds of traditional software companies. And these are the core developers that actually built the Casper Network. So they took a very traditional software focus when they built the protocol. And even the developer workflow is very, very much like software as it's always been built. So they didn't really step outside of the workflow that they were used to, which we feel is going to really make it easy for non-blockchain developers to onboard onto the system because it's going to work exactly the way that other software has always worked. So from the smart contract engine itself to the workflow for building contracts, it's going to feel very, very much like Web2 and the software that way you've always written it.
0: That's great. Yeah. And I think we see that theme at the larger level in bringing all these things to the public that we need to make it easy for them. But there's another level that you're demonstrating here of developers, right? Why make them learn something completely new if they don't have to, right? Make things easier. On that note, let's talk about what you guys have been building, right? Let's talk about some specifics.
2: Oh, yeah. So, you know, we've been focused on building the Casper Network. took us about two and a half years to build Mainnet. Mainnet was launched March 31st, 2021, it's been in production for about 18 months. And our focus really was to create features that we ourselves would use as technology leaders in a large technology organization. And that's where I come from 25 years in Web 2 and Web 1 technologies. And I looked at the blockchain landscape when we founded the company and couldn't find a public protocol that I would use that gave me the flexibility and power and control I needed to service customers be in service to regulatory requirements or my investors, right? I have to innovate, even if I'm using blockchain technology. So I needed to be able to continuously upgrade software on chain. I needed to be able to get business intelligence and analytics through an ETL process. And I needed to be able to build and test my contracts using the same processes that software has always been built with. Mm -hmm. And When we looked at those protocols in the space, we just didn't find that, right? So that's what we set out to build. So Casper's got fantastic granular permissioning schemes and features that all the stakeholders in an organization would need before they approve a protocol platform in their infrastructure.
0: That's great. And I appreciate you reaching back to your experience in Web2. And I think just for folks listening and even for myself, can you give a little bit of context in how that experience in Web 2 in, informs what's going on in Web 3 with you right now? That's a lot of experience that you mentioned you have under your belt. And, you know, there's similarities and there's differences.
2: Yeah. So I think Web 3 is an extension of Web 2. And I look at the blockchain protocol, you know, separate from cryptocurrency. I think of it as, so I think of HTTP Web 2 as an information protocol. Like you see a lot of information out there on the internet. And I see blockchain as a trust protocol. So any information that passes through the blockchain can be trusted. And so I see it an augmentation to Web2, not a tear out and replace. And by that extension, blockchain has to become part of a larger application infrastructure. And so I understand Web2 infrastructure very, very well from the back end architecture of Web2 systems, the infrastructure involved in Web2 systems. And I can understand how to integrate blockchain technology into that application stack. And so that's what Casper does very, very well. And our engineering team also, you know, hails from that era as well. So they understand, you know, how to build large, scalable, back-end production systems. And so the Casper network is purpose-built to work alongside those Web2 production systems.
4: So I'd love to zoom out a little bit more. On the show, Edge of NFT, we go well beyond the conversation about just NFTs, and there's so many business problems that can now be tackled with this technology and the convergence of of technology that's now available, including what you guys have built. We're in Davos. People are talking about some of the biggest problems in our society right now, from what's going on in Ukraine to the economy, you know, in the agricultural challenges we're having across the food tech world. I'd love to understand more about the business problems that you guys are solving. I've heard bits and pieces of some of the interesting projects that you're working on. But if you could elaborate on that and, and what you think Casper is really good at tackling when it comes to the, this century's challenges.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I'll cover some. I'm sure Meta will have even more. But instead of talking about like specific companies, let's talk about like specific use cases in terms like let me abstract them and then give an example of yeah, how you'd use it. Absolutely. So one thing that we're really excited about is track and trace, which means, you know, any item, how it moves either through a supply chain or if it's a patent or IP, like how it goes from one owner to the other, bring that back to some of the biggest problems we have today. We know we have a food supply chain problem in the world currently, you know especially with Ukraine being such a big supplier of wheat. you know I think I was hearing yesterday from actually a senior world leader that we might have only twelve weeks of like wheat inventory left in Europe, and there needs to be a solution to that problem now, if we had a worldwide blockchain-based food supply management system, you know, because right now each country kind of keeps track of its stuff on their own. And it takes experts to come and aggregate this. But you could have a snapshot of, you know, core fundamental commodities like wheat, rice, etc., which are completely, you know, if you don't have them, people start starving and then the pitchforks come out, and you, yeah, look, you know, you look, solve that I, problem.
4: I did not have European bread, and I was in Europe, I would not be a happy camber.
3: No, exactly, right? And so, so that's one. So, track and trace, and you can extend that to lots of things, right? It could be, okay, I feel much, or an airplane manufacturer feels much more confident about putting this engine together because I know where every single part of that turbine came from. And, you know, putting the wrong piece into a turbine can have pretty disastrous consequences. So, track and trace is something we really like. Another thing is digital certification and NFTs are part of that. Like the way we think about NFTs is they're digital certificates and we take that concept further where we say really the real value of it is A, if it can be a digital certificate of something that has real value, like for example, a watch or, you know, the whiskey cask we just auctioned or, or a piece of art. But the second layer, and, you know, if we talk more about NFTs, we can talk about some unique features is add intelligence to that. Now, think about, so I'll give a very specific example, right? Vincent van Gogh died a pauper. His estate never made any money, but people who have traded his paintings have made hundreds of millions of dollars. What if there was an NFT backing each of the paintings? One, you've solved the authentication problem. But second, you could tack on every time it's resold, 10% goes to Vincent van Gogh or his estate. And so, the problem of, you know, artists and people not being properly compensated. And you could add any level of intelligence, right? You do the same thing with a house. You could have your house as an NFT. You can sell portions of it to let people stay a few months. Every time it's resold, there's automatic value added. If you do a refurbishment, you know, the house value gets, you know, re There's so many. I mean, it really, it's up to your imagination. So those are two, like, really big ones. Meta, any others that are your favorites?
2: Oh, gosh. So I think if you dig deeper into track and trace, there's really interesting things in the food supply that become important in terms of the quality of the food, the standards, right? So the European Union has very different standards for food than, say, the United States. And having clarity around which resources you can actually use for Europe because they need to be compliant, right? And so you think about, you know, one of the revolutions in the computing industry was this notion of just-in-time manufacturing, right? So you order a computer from Dell And they assemble it after you've ordered it. You can take that even one level further, right? And get even more transparency and more real-time information about your supply chain, as a good example, right? Similarly, there's also innovations in ticketing, in coupons, in customer loyalty programs. There's even an opportunity here where you can take an NFT... And then you can enhance it with added value added features later on. So you can take brand marketing really to the next level and deepen your engagement with your customers using this wonderful technology.
4: Yeah. And let me just say, as co-founder of a food tech company that had to deal with sourcing consistent ingredients across five different regions, it was mission impossible. And just the, the grades of different types of products that you don't even realize are graded and the nuance of those grades and, and the definitions of those grades, it's very complicated. And, you know, organic is not always the best quality. Yep. There's a lot to it. And I think it's very complex problems like this. It sounds like you guys are trying to solve. So that's really great.
0: Yeah, I know uh, we don't have a lot of time. We're going to wrap up soon here. We also might have some interesting things for you to share with us that people will be excited to hear. Before we go to that, could you both, because you're just so uh, in on what's going on, Give us a little bit of a projection into the rest of the year from now. Like anything that you could share about the way that you're thinking about the future from this point forward. I tend to prefer like more like five-ish year yeah.
3: outlook only because I'm fairly confident it's going to be somewhat like what I said in five years. But I don't know when, right? Mm-hmm. Like stuff happens faster or slower. I think there'll be a formalization of the blockchain industry. There's going to be more standards around financial instruments, what they look like algorithmically, what data exchange looks like. If you think about it, the internet only works because every piece of infrastructure can talk to each other because there's TCP IP. We don't have TCP IP in the blockchain. I don't know whether it's half a decade or a decade, but I see more formalization, which means there'll be significantly better interoperability. And as a result, uh, adoption really uh, goes fast. The second big thing I see, and one of the biggest challenges in blockchain and why it's so underpenetrated, is huge UX improvements. The UX is, you know, like, like for us who are like crypto natives, MetaMask looks fine, but actually <laughs> it's, like if I give it to my grandma, it's literally mm-hmm. equivalent to asking
0: her to do brain surgery. I think <laughs>
4: Ethan tried to onboard one of our friends to get one of our spirit seeds and it took an hour or yeah, yeah, two. Yeah. yeah, luckily
0: yeah. it was a reward, rewarding, uh, he ended ready.
4: up winning one of the Nicole Buffett limited edition uh, spare <laughs> coins. So it worked out for him. But
3: yeah. what a, what an effort. Yeah. 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 <laughs> exactly, right? And if you think about it, the internet really only took off after the web browser made it really, really simple, right? You you type the name of the thing you like and you get there. Before, you know, if you had a shell account, it was it was so complicated.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Two more things I see on the horizon, like I think we'll have a lot more regulatory clarity in the next few years, which will be good. I mean, either way it ends up, I mean Blockchain is one of those things that will always survive because, you know, if one country doesn't adopt it, now it's actually really good for another country to now become the hub. So mm-hmm. it's kind of anti-fragile that way. Hmm. But some clarity would be great. Right now, it's hard to know whether what you're doing is right or wrong. And then finally, I, I think there'll be a lot more expenditure, especially from the government and enterprise side. That's really, really lagged. You know, it's kind of been funded as a community, so to speak, so far. Mm-hmm. Which, which just had its pros and cons. I mean, there's been a lot of self-sovereignty, but like you basically have a limited set of funds or like kingmakers in the space and you know that's so against like decentralization. Mm-hmm. And I think the more spread of enterprise and governments actually funding real use cases will uh, make this industry more serious.
2: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. You know, next 5 years, I really do see enterprises moving into having production projects running on, uh, hopefully on a Casper mainnet, as well as others. But I I do see that they are now much, much more interested in actually adopting public blockchain infrastructure. So there's a lot of education that's happening in the space, which, you know, we're really proud to be in the forefront of that. A lot of our customers that we speak with, the first thing they're asking is, you know, educate me on blockchain. Like, what is the difference, right? How should I use it? What are the use cases? So I think that the education and as a community, we should all be striving to educate everybody we come in contact with the, the merits of permissionless public blockchain protocols and you know the trust that they provide and the right way to use them right like we want to optimize these valuable resources to use them properly and so i think i see a lot of education happening i see a lot of adoption happening
3: yeah to your I point guess. on education like that is like one of my pet peeves it's like this hammer and nail problem they're like oh blockchain use it for pretty much x anything right <laughs> and it's actually not an appropriate technology for a lot of It's always going to be computationally more expensive. It just is, You know, decentralized consensus costs more processing cycles than centralized consensus. Mm -hmm. It always will. And so it's actually not an appropriate technology for a lot of things. But for the
0: things it's appropriate at, it is really, really powerful. Very cool. Well, we know you guys have a lot of things you're cooking up and you can't share probably too much about it. But I always ask people to at least tell us what you can't share. (laughs) <laughs> you know, so that uh, no, it's a little of a, <laughs> a sneaky way of getting you guys to share some interesting news. But here's, there's something cool that you guys are cooking up that you'd like to share right now, like some breaking news. Yeah, around the uh, NFT.
4: Stands.
0: Yeah,
3: I'll let Meta talk about our NFT standard. Oh starter. yeah,
2: so yes, yeah, so we are in the user acceptance testing portion of a brand new NFT standard that we're coming out with, which is pretty revolutionary in the space. I don't think there's any other protocol out there that has this kind of an NFT standard. And because Casper contracts operate like regular software you can actually install and configure your NFT contract the way you configure regular software. So we have an NFT standard that will allow you to create NFTs that are not transferable, that are non-burnable, that have mutable metadata or non-mutable metadata, that are upgradable, that are non-upgradable. And you do this at install time. So what this means is it's a no-code NFT solution that will literally enable you to create any kind of NFT you want. And so you just get a binary WebAssembly, and when you run the transaction, you just specify the modality in which your NFT contract is going to run.
4: And is that compatible with other Layer 1 solutions?
2: It is not. It's this purely Casper-specific thing because Casper is the only protocol that actually has a contract package manager, which is very similar to other software that you see on your computer or if you go to GitHub and you're looking for open source software... This notion of package management is very, very common in the tech space, but it's not common on blockchain. So
4: theoretically, Mm. if someone else did something around that, that type of thing, it could be compatible with the standard. But right now, you guys are pioneering brand new ground that really works well for enterprises.
2: Yeah, that's right. So you can imagine that I have somebody in my marketing department and they want to create all different kinds of NFTs. Maybe they want to create tickets and they want to have NFTs that are associated with the ticket, right? So they would create one NFT contract for all my tickets. And then they could create another NFT contract for all of the images or all the brand related coupons. And they have very different properties. My tickets would be transferable. Coupons would not be transferable. And I can do this without having to write any code. And so all the other protocols, what you see is six, seven, eight, nine different NFT standards. And then you have to hire a developer to change that code to meet your business needs. You don't have to do that with the Caster protocol. You can do it without writing any code at all.
4: And what's the the timeline on full implementation of this new standard?
2: Well, we are in our final user acceptance testing, and we plan on rolling out with our first partner in the next four to six weeks.
4: Wow, that's really exciting. It is
2: really cool. And it's very validating when we met with these partners that have been on the forefront of NFT technology. They've been working with a lot of Fortune 500 brands. When we looked at their interface, they actually had to work around Mm. all of the deficiencies. So when you look at their interface, we said, oh, that's already in the contract. They said, that's amazing because we've had to work around it. So they've had to build up a whole bunch of layer two infrastructure to solve what we solved at the contract level.
4: Can you possibly speak to what one of the first, you know, adoptions of this technology will be or is that not public information? It's
2: yet? not public information right. as yet. But, but, soon, soon. but soon, very soon. All
4: right. So we'll we'll check in. in yeah, a few definitely. Weeks.
2: yeah, definitely. Yeah, uh,
4: definitely. Well, I know you guys have a busy Davos experience. Um, there's a lot going on. My feet are really tired already, so um, (laughs) I'm working through that. But, you know, excited to be part of this experience with you and continue to do some media here. Thanks again for your hospitality. It's a wonderful meeting point for community and connection, co-creation, and I wish you a great experience. Hope this was a fruitful first time doing this in Dallas.
0: Yeah. And before we run, too, just if you want to send anybody to links or websites or particular project, make sure you get that in.
3: Oh yeah, okay, I mean yeah. you can find us on casperlabs.io. Mm-hmm. So if you go to casperlabs.io or casper.network, mm-hmm. you can find all the information about both the open source network as well as Casper Labs which is us and uh, Thanks so much for having us. This yeah. was a fun this was conversation.
0: Terrific. Thank you so much yeah, for having us it. on. Our pleasure. Thanks. A yeah, privilege. Cheers. 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 Thanks. <laughs> Next. Ethan. All right, this is Ethan here at Davos once again with the Edge of NFT podcast. And I'm coming to you from the Ukraine house where of course there's lots of interesting activity going on and lots of support for the country. And right now I'm gonna be speaking with Alexander Bornikov and we're gonna talk a little bit about the Ukraine and what's going on with NFTs and crypto actually in the space. So once you introduce yourself Alexander.
1: Yeah, so my name is Alex Bornikov and I work for Minister of Digital Transformation of Ukraine And we basically uh, take care of country digitalization, like moving all government services online, uh, teaching people digital skills, also developing IT industry, startup ecosystem, venture ecosystem, including crypto, including NFT of course. And during the first day of war, we started this crypto fund of Ukraine, which managed to raise more than 60 million dollars in crypto. And what is interesting about NFT that some people started to donate instead of giving like Bitcoin of ethereum or tether they started to donate their nfts and eventually like so far we've got like, more than 300 nfts on ethereum account one of them is cryptopank nft right. yeah so now it's for sale for 90 ethers but we'll see about that let's get that picked up folks <laughs> <laughs> yeah sure if, if someone want to buy it all the money that go from this purchase gonna go to help humanitarian cause and help Ukraine to fight this brutal aggression from the Russian forces, Russian Federation. But there are a number of others and we've created a special account on OpenSea where we listed all these NFTs that were donated and and just offered them for for sale. And again, all this money going to help Ukrainians, um, both on uh, like refugees and who stayed in the military. And also, after like two weeks of war, we started to get an like, enormous amount of requests, like people starting doing different NFT collections in order to sell those NFTs and aim those funds to humanitarian costs. And we actually even created a special website called donate.thedigital.gov.ua and where you can see all the NFT projects that we support. There's like 10 different projects, but in fact, it's even more of them. There's even like a huge sale of uh, and like a... million NFT. uh, What was that? There was a famous artist from Ukraine. They created a picture, they sell it for... And then they also directed money for, for some charity fund. So together, I think we managed to create a whole community of NFT collections and projects, projects around the situation. And the Ministry of Digital Transformation support some of them some of them that made it in a partnership but the way, well but we generally support everyone because i think it's a call from the heart of people who wanted to support ukraine no matter what in the way they can but what we decided to focus on with the partners on on one special project that i want to talk about right now it called uh, meta history of war it's a like museum of war mm-hmm. so i think it's a brilliant concept and uh, i personally like admired by the, the idea of <coughs> preserving memory of the war in the blockchain using NFTs. So basically concept look like starting from day one, artist takes a news from Twitter from trusted source, like, for example, Associated Press, and he painted an art associated to this news. So for example, on the day first, like when Russia just crossed the border, there was news like in Twitter, like Russian forces crossed the border and artists took this news and wrote a picture of a child that's sleeping and uh, basically every NFT looked like a painting with a screenshot of this twitter news Mm -hmm. and each day has several news and they put in the chronological order so like day one day two day three and every day contains couple of NFTs which you can purchase and uh, keep this memory with you and preserve it um, because it's in blockchain you can you cannot twist it you cannot change it so because it, and it's also important because Russia for uh, decades wanted to change Ukrainian history but once it's over they will won't be able to do this because this is all in blockchain you obviously can so this collection is is not final it's because war is going on and I know that right now it's one 20 days of this museum arts yeah
0: and is is that the metahistory.gallery is that is yes, that the yes. la- the web link yeah okay
1: yeah so we support this on on government level i know we have our uh, like advocates like britain and kaisers helping a lot so uh, i think there's it's like you know uh, this museum is like completely new form i think it's first time in e- I never seen this before, it's the first time in human history, someone made a museum online on a blockchain with the help of NFT. And if you buy NFT, it's like you go into a real museum and there's the souvenirs and you can buy and keep the piece with you because somehow it's reflected in your mind and your heart and you touch your soul. So this is a great example of history moving from offline museum to online.
0: Yeah, that's, that's a really beautiful story and uh, we encourage people to check those, those projects out. Um, I'd love to just get a little bit of context too on your, on your history being involved in digital transformation within Ukraine. How long have you been involved and, and what's it been like kind of seeing this sort of boom in NFTs and crypto that's been going on the past year and a half and, and how it's kind of become such a part of the conversation of what's going on in Ukraine?
1: Um, well, I joined ministry in late 2019 and before joining I was a private entrepreneur doing some my own project in IT um, and uh, uh, I was familiar with crypto and uh, when I joined it was one of the major tasks for us like, like we put uh, in front of ourselves that we need to make uh, everything to make crypto entities legal in Ukraine because it was like in a great area um, eventually like after, after two years uh, we managed to Put this into Ukrainian legislation, passed the law through the parliament, and now uh, Ukrainians can in, like uh, hold crypto as asset, uh, and uh, this is like a sort of asset and completely legal in Ukraine. Later on, when we started uh, see the, like NFT starts kicking in, we even changed a uh, little legislation on the way because this asset was never in our mind when we started this back in two thousand nineteen. Right. So it's quite interesting how quickly it was it was developing. So. Even our president, um, this is its is like during the time of war, he signed this law, signed this bill on crypto uh, and virtual assets. Right. So so this is a strong, a strong signal that uh, Ukraine want to be on top of technologies, on top of this world. And, um, and I'm not sure if everybody knows, but Ukraine is one of the top countries in the world, according to Crypto Adoption Index from Chain Analysis. And they estimated more than five million wallets of Ukraine. So it's a huge number of Ukrainians know how to deal with crypto. Um, and uh, we have a very powerful blockchain community in Ukraine. So uh, we were actually working close with the business community to enable crypto in Ukraine. And they doing great and they behind many bright projects for, uh, that almost everybody knows.
0: It's excellent. Um, well, I know you have to get going soon. It's my first Davos here. It's been really impressive to see um, the outpouring of love and support for the Ukraine. So we're happy to be here and be a part of it. I'm happy to, for all of the grassroots movements that are going on, um, you know, on the promenade here and really lucky to run into you and be able to capture this moment. And before we run along here, you know, would love to get your personal perspective on you know, like you said, there's so many people that want to help out whatever way they can. If you have any recommended ways, you know, let us know so that word can get out there.
1: Well, sure. Uh, most of their, like, a top government officials right now are asking for a weapon, for for help, like, uh, for, with the big things, I would call this. My point is that please continue to work with Ukrainian businesses, continue to support Ukrainian startups, people from Ukraine who want, want to do business with the rest of the world because uh, Russia really blocked. A majority of Ukrainian economy with this war and uh, Ukrainians know how to provide for themselves and we're just looking for opportunities uh, new new markets and uh, we can completely reshape our economy so uh, this this is the, the great help from from Western country from the Western world if we in, like start working more with Ukrainians also from on the donation course of course a lot of millions of refugees and uh, please uh, feel free to buy those NFT this way you can also support refugees and people of Ukraine. Thank you so much.
0: All right, thank you very much. Hope that uh, inspires some action and really inspiring. And of course, we've seen people who had uh, their dev teams in Ukraine, you know, be impacted by this, but you know, there's a reason they had their dev team in Ukraine. There's some great developers. um, There's some great resources, like you said. So wonderful ideas, appreciate it.
5: Hey there, NFT space cadet. Let's zoom in on the globe from outer space today to Abbot Kinney Boulevard in Venice Beach, LA Let me show you a cosmic tech beacon that shines out among the bustle of fashion, art, and food there. It's a thriving software dev, data science, and design studio known as AE Studio, where scores of the sharpest minds have come together to help founders and execs create software and machine learning solutions that are not only profitable and increase our agency as humans, but that give us that warm fuzzy feeling that elegant tech so wonderfully does. AE's breadth of talent allows them to build anything from instillvideo.com – it's a health, fitness, and wellness app that makes your chakras tingle – to award-winning brain-computer interface solutions that could quite literally bend our minds. Oh, and keep an eye out for Token Runners, their NFT white-label marketplace, as well as our highly anticipated NFT drop, Boomer NFT. Now, for all you DGens who strive to shed the Cumberbun and Pearls, comes a jaw dropping, awe inspiring partnership not seen since the heyday of Shaq and Kobe. It's called Edge of AE Studio, and you can find out all about it at edgeofae.com. That's right, this full service, soup to nuts, end to end, whole enchilada NFT service can help you. Yes, you, Randy. Launch your NFT project. Edge of NFT and AE Studio have come together, like Voltron, to get your project in gear so you can hightail it straight to the moon, stardom, and maybe even your own private yacht. Go to edgeofae.com to find out more. That's edgeofae.com. Actual results may vary depending on moon landing location, domain of stardom, scale and model of yacht, as well as weather scale, model of yacht, or actual yacht.
0: Hey there, Ethan here from Edge of NFT and I'm back again at Davos hanging out at the Crypto House, a very lively scene with, with lots of interesting personalities running through it. And I'm here with Marcus Shingles, who I, I think we're going to be really fascinated to get some insights from and find out what he's up to. I'm going to
6: let Marcus introduce himself and tell him uh, where, where he's coming from today. Yeah. Hi, Ethan. So I'm, uh, I'm based in the U.S. I split my time between Los Angeles and Jackson Hole, Wyoming. And I'm here in Davos because I'm part of the expert network for their World Economic Forum's Fourth Industrial Revolution. I'm currently doing a blockchain research project with Henning Diedrich, who's a very well-known blockchain engineer around food supply chain traceability. Just by way of background, I come from the professional services field. I was a partner at Deloitte Consulting, leading the innovation practice with Emerging Tech. I then left Deloitte to take the CEO position at the XPRIZE Foundation. That's a nonprofit that does global competitions. And then I uh, went on from there to do a, a stint at at Bain Consulting, management consulting, before getting into my current role, where I'm responsible for designing a smart city in uh, Chiang Mai, Thailand, on 15 square miles as part of an aerotropolis, an airport in a city. So I've been. Hired to oversee that whole development around the sustainable energy, e-government, DAOs with blockchain, um, water sustainability, waste management, education. It's a pretty comprehensive thing. And what I'm most excited about is I run a nonprofit that I founded with a group of young people from low-income communities that I've been mentoring for years, and we're doing some really exciting things with the United Nations around metaverse and related. So that's that's my latest. Awesome. Well, I would say in response to all that, the future is here and
0: you're living in it and creating it. Yeah, that's very exciting. And you gave a lot of context for where you've come from um, in terms of your background and I'm just curious, was there a moment before you were, I would describe you as a bit of a futurist in terms of all the things you're involved with, maybe a technologist. Is there a moment that you weren't and you made a transition or, and how was the progress of, of you kind of getting involved and in just kind of changing maybe stuff? Yeah.
6: I mean, I don't know if the futurist label fits on me so much because usually most futurists, and I'm not being derogatory about futurists, usually most futurists have, they don't have the handcuffs of pragmatic implementation. And I'm, ideas are easy, the execution's hard. And I'm an operator, you know, working at firms like Deloitte or Bain or even my own management consulting businesses that i run. I've always had to start a project and finish it, a major initiative. So you can hear a lot of people talking about NFTs or blockchain or DAOs or e-government or whatever it might be. I'm usually the one on the hook that actually has to implement a very large scale implementation and go through the real pain and struggles of trying to do that. And it also separates the hype from reality when you do that. So I think, I think I'm think i a forecaster of where technology is going and understanding it very well, whether it's AI or robotics or 3D printing or VR or blockchain or, or what have you. But I also am more pragmatic in terms of what can actually be used to do real things, even very innovative, disruptive things. Because I definitely feel like I'm more—I push the limits, but it's really understanding what's ready for prime time now versus something that sounds real sexy and real neat, but it's not implementable for a while.
0: Yeah, I totally appreciate that, and and it it is—it's it, it's a struggle, and it's probably far underappreciated, right? The, yeah. the amount of
6: struggle that goes into that. Um, I'll give you a good example if you'd like, and yeah. it will kind of segue into kind of my passion project I'm doing with my nonprofit so two years ago I was doing a lot of work around metaverse and virtual reality this was before Zuckerberg changed his name from Facebook before it got popular so two years ago when not a lot of people were talking about this but it was obvious to me and to my peers who have been in the space for a while that there was this inflection point that was starting to happen the technology the hardware was hitting an inflection point where something that was not working very good to do virtual reality have all of a sudden really scaled to a point where it was exceptional technology, or at least an inflection point to where it was ready for prime time. It wasn't making you sick and the field of view was much better. And then of course Oculus came out with a price point that made sense. And so when that happened about a year and a half ago, if you look at the Oculus One, that's when that came out. Again, how do you separate hype from reality if you started to use those headsets? They are primarily consumption environments, meaning you were gaming or you were using it, even in a business setting, you were using it to be shared something that someone else created for you. And if you wanted to create, there was no tools to do that. COVID came along and the demand for companies to want to build stuff went way up. So the VCs started to put tons of money into these platforms to make them production environments, not just consumption. And on top of that, the development environments themselves went from technical coding type of development environments, really skilled technical resources, to where literally during COVID, the platform started to produce functionality almost like you see in PowerPoint, where you could get into a virtual reality space, and rather than having a graphic design artist build you something in in some sophisticated software package, you could actually get in there and start using the features and functions of the software to build a space. So if I wanted to build this restaurant in virtual reality three years ago, it would have cost me $100,000 and it would have taken me a while to do it. I'd have needed need specialized skills. Today, I can a headset one of my team members from Exponential Destiny, the nonprofit I run, who was born and raised in South Central Los Angeles, first generation high school graduate, let alone college, getting into college. They could put on that headset, and without having the technical skill, like a, a coding skill, which not everybody has, especially if you're coming out of a public school in a low-income community, because they are not getting that type of education. He or she could actually build out this whole environment through just a creative mindset and understanding the sophistication of the tool, the features, and the fun. Just like you can be a power user in PowerPoint or Excel and use pivot tables, it's the same thing. And so when we when I started identify that the skill set was being democratized. I started to atrophy myself from the big consulting firms that I was working with and started to instead hire young people from low income communities that I had been mentoring since they've been 15. So there was this first group that I actually co-founded my nonprofit with, which I said, guys, listen, there's something pretty crazy happening. I know I've told you a lot about blockchain and NFTs and all this stuff going on. I know, Samantha, you're an art major. That's not your thing. You're not going to learn that stuff, admittedly. You could if you wanted to, but you don't. it's just not where your interest is. Well, here's the good news. Virtual reality has gotten to a point where you can get in there and create things for companies that let them do things in magical ways, whether it's training, education, learning, sales, marketing. You can just create any environment you want, and it's happening now, and I guarantee you, within two years, every business, every company, every person will have a website in the metaverse. They'll have an immersive and experiential Model that they have, right? Every brand. Right. So if we start now, you'll be way ahead of the curve and you'll be relevant. That was a year and a half ago. Now that Facebook changed their name to Meta and everybody's talking about it, these young people are way ahead of the curve. So the nonprofit we run is quickly using this window of opportunity to train as many young people or adult learners who are in economically stressed situations who don't have the skill set to get a job in the new economy. We see this as an opportunity to pull them into that immediately and get them skilled in this. And so that's what we do.
0: Yeah, I love that. And we see that kind of a, a leapfrog capability all 100%. across the Web3 space. I mean, whether it comes to the individuals and their access, as we see kind of people in the Philippines having access to income through a game like Hexie Infinity, or just the ideas of bringing uh, property ownership onto the blockchain and bring uh, you know sort of accountability and immutability to spaces where um, there's not that existing infrastructure like the courthouse and the, you know, the deeds and the record keeping that's, that we have in more uh, established uh, nations, right? It's incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me a little bit more about your involvement in the UN. <laughs> tell me about uh, da-
6: Davos and your experience
0: here. Well, let me, I'll, I'll
6: share with, yeah, I mean, we're doing, I'm officially working with the ITU, which is a specialized agency of the United Nations that's responsible for AI internet connection all that if you look at the UN as a whole the one group that's responsible for all the digital tech is the ITU when I was CEO of XPRIZE we launched the AI for Good Summit many people are familiar with that it's done really well it's still going right so they asked me to do the opening keynote at their digital transformation summit in Geneva Switzerland at the UN at their ITU summit on February 28th so it was about two months ago and for that opening keynote which was uh, it was like a three-day summit this was the very first session I brought the six young people from South Central Los Angeles, and they showed up with me on stage. Because there's nothing more compelling than me talking about the sustainable development goals and the opportunity of the metaverse to lift people out of poverty, to give economic opportunity to people, kind of, you know, the SDGs. I don't want to be the guy from California saying, oh, this is easy. So I had the young people get up and do most of the presentation. And for example, Juan, who's on my team, stood up there and said, a year ago I worked at Target stores, the retailer stocking shelves. Then I followed Marcus on a project that he invited me in just to shadow him because he was helping a company, a consumer product company, use the metaverse to experiment with using VR to do training and education. When that project ended after 12 weeks, Marcus finished the strategy project. The client, the CEO of the client said, okay, Marcus, we want to move forward with your recommendation and your advice that we should set up a department. We totally see the potential here. We know we'll grow into it. It's evolving. But yeah, we have 200,000 distributors and we need to train them. And it's COVID. We'd love to start scaling this. Do you have anyone you'd recommend that we can hire to help us run this department. And I'm like, why not you hire Juan? And they're like, oh, the, the, the 19-year-old on the product, we loved him, but we didn't want to steal him from you. I'm like, no, that's the whole idea. Employ him, please. So he told that story. And now he's got, Now he leads the VR department at a global consumer product company. It's incredible. Amazing, right? And we could do all that all day long, because the key is you just have to be the first one out there. In two years, everyone will have the skill set. It'll be a commodity. So the key is to be relevant now to adopt the skill set now And whenever you find an opportunity to to do the leapfrog, I think we have somewhat of a responsibility to say, well, who who in society needs to do leapfrog right now? It's probably the ones that if they don't get this leapfrog, they're going to be behind forever. And so let's go to schools that are really under-resourced, don't have the right funds, and let's work with their students to get them in this space. What my nonprofit does now is we were doing commercial projects like that consumer product company, but we actually pivoted because where would a young person even be more relevant to a client It's if that client is a high school, because they're young themselves. So now we work with the sixth largest school district in the U.S. in Broward County. We're currently doing a project in Chicago, the west side of Chicago. What we do is we approach the school. We raise all the money. We go into the school and we say, look, we raised X dollars to come in, get you headsets, and then take you through a six-month process to help you create new curriculum and educate people using this magical skill set that using software that's potentially that's essentially free very low cost on the software and a headset that costs three hundred bucks and you as teachers and students will be able to build experiences that you just couldn't build before to do education and learning whatever the topic is whether it's traditional stuff like math and science or florida chose how do i make healthy decisions around i have a budget on how i eat because their their issue was obesity and diabetes and they they said, students tune out when we talk about this. You can't show them a PowerPoint presentation or lecture to them about it. We may be built for them a virtual supermarket and gamified, and I mean, this is a tough you can do. But all those experiences were designed and built by other 19- and 20-year-olds that are in the profession. Yeah. And then when we get done with the high school, they have a curriculum that they can now do themselves. They're not dependent on us. And the seniors that were part of the high school, we then hire them for the next school.
0: That's it's incredible. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's, great. it's great stuff, and as someone who... You know, I I wouldn't say that I came from the least privileged background, but I, I did uh, come from a background where I had to really work pretty hard. I went through. A, Same here. I got a scholarship from the Chicago Scholars Foundation oh, out of high school, which luckily I, grew up I in was Illinois? just granted. Yeah, I grew up, in I grew up Michigan. Michigan. Excellent. Excellent.
6: I lived, I lived in Chicago for a while. Okay,
0: nice. I was born in uh, Alma, Michigan, actually. Okay. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, we'll we'll connect more after after the interview. But yeah, you know, luckily they gave me like they sought out students like me and gave me a scholarship. I didn't really even know about the scholarship application process, you uh-huh. know, and so um, finding these folks like you're saying and taking a minute to say you need this and you can do something with this and, and, and having people in the know share that I think it's, it's very powerful yeah so we want to make sure uh, before we run that we share exactly how those people can get involved the young people that target audience. well there's
6: something fun we re- yeah thanks for that so there's something really fun we did when we did that UN speech on February 28th we ended the topic with announcing with the support of the ITU of the UN's ITU agency a global competition. So this is kind of, as the former CEO of XPRIZE launching global competitions, I know a thing about how to run a prize model. Basically, we're gonna crowdsource the world by asking them, form a team. You can have two people on a team, it can be you and a friend, or you can have up to six people on the team. You can choose anyone in the world you wanna be on your team. Find a team members. Then, go to the 17 SDGs. Pick the SDG that resonates you with the most out of the 17. Right, zero hunger, no poverty, uh, sustainable consumption and production, whatever the SDG is. Then, start attending Exponential Destiny's webinars where we're going to coach you on how to get into the software and create stuff. It's not rocket science, right? And then you have eight months to build the most fantastic thing that your imagination can come up with that builds empathy, awareness, and education for that SDG. We're not asking you to solve the SDG. We're saying create something that's so engaging and so magical with your imagination using all the powers of virtual reality and all the tools here even if you introduce NFTs and other things into the model just make it so that it's sticky it's engaging, this wow factor but also it educates people on this is the challenges or opportunities with this SDG you know. and teams have 8 months to put that together and then we're going to pick the top winners out of 2 age groups 14 and 18 year olds and then 19 year olds and above so you pick the age group you're in and if you come in as the top winner, when we do the evaluation, you'll be on the UN stage with us at the next ITU Summit next May, where the Secretary General of the ITU and that whole group and I will be presenting you with the award. Plus, we're raising hundreds of thousands of dollars around the whole model. So, for example, Jessica Alba is the CEO of The Honest Company, besides being an, her career as an actress. The Honest Company, Nick Vallejos and Jessica Alba provided us with $30,000 for the one SDG that's important to them, sustainable consumption and production. So we've done similar with the other SDGs and we're going to continue to raise from funders to get each SDG covered. So we anticipate that if you're the overall top winner, you're going to get upwards of thirty dollars to $50,000. But even the top in just your SDG, we're already accruing the sponsorship funds to where we're getting to like five dollars to $10,000 per SDG per HR. We hope to hit that target, if not more. So there's a real incentive that you, you might win money, but the, the goal is have fun, be part of a community and learn a new skill set and learn a new skill set trying to express something about a sustainable development goal. The information to sign up and register if people are interested, and remember this is a non-profit thing, it's not commercial, I receive no compensation whatsoever from the whole model, Um, it's www.sdgmetaverseprize.org and people can find out all the information and now's the time to register. Next Monday in Kigali, Rwanda, my team and I are going to Rwanda to be part of the Global Youth Summit that they're having. They're going to have 4,000 young people virtually and about 1,000 in person. And we're using that as the kickoff for teams to start to register. And that's how people can get involved. Beautiful. Well,
0: thank you so much for sharing that with us. Uh, We'll be sharing that with our audience. We'll put it out on socials. And we'll make sure people get involved and happy to be a part of what you're cooking up. Thank you.
6: Appreciate that,
0: All right, well, we've been really privileged to talk to these world leaders here in Davos, Switzerland. Thanks for joining us on this journey. We have reached the outer limit at the edge of NFTs for today. Thanks everyone for exploring with us. We've got space though for more adventures on this starship. So invite your friends, recruit some cool strangers that will make this journey all so much better. How? Go to Spotify or iTunes right now, rate us and say something awesome. Then go to edgeofnft.com to dive further down the rabbit hole. You can also come and participate in edgeofnft.com discord and get to know the community. Lastly, be sure to tune in next time for
5: more great NFT content. And thanks for sharing this time with us today. The views and opinions expressed on the Edge of NFT podcast reflect solely those views and opinions of the show creators and its guests. We are learning as we go, just like you. Please make sure to do your own research. Our podcast is not financial advice. There are multiple strategies, and not all strategies fit all people. We understand that you are using any and all information available on or through this podcast at your own risk.